for Thought on WJR is presented by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state. Here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome back, everyone, and thanks for listening. Food security impacts every aspect of a person's life. Beginning with Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we understand that maximizing one's potential outside of a food-secure environment is at best challenging and in many instances impossible. Despite this understanding, we still know too little about the return on investment in achieving a food-secure community. This is for several important reasons. Number one, we have not measured the impact of food security in a disciplined and structured way. Number two, we have relegated much of food security to SNAP, WIC, and school nutrition programs that are more concerned with eligibility than with impact. Three, we have confused the issue of labeling food insecurity as a symptom rather than as a sustaining cause of poverty, minimizing the devastating impact of not solving the problem. We have pushed the solution, number four, toward charity and the nonprofit sector who are strong in service but lacking in research and other administrative strength needed to solve a complex problem like food insecurity. And lastly, number five, we have not considered clearly enough who benefits when food security is solved. Healthcare, education, businesses with low income consumers and businesses with low wage earners, each of whom should be investing in food security for their own benefit, not just the benefit of those suffering directly from it. Jerry and I are back to unpack these concepts and challenges on this edition of Food for Thought. Get in touch with the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Visit fbcmich.org. Welcome back, everyone. As promised, Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here in the WJR studios. And Jerry, uh, looking spiffy as always. and um, Just trying to keep up, doctor. Well, Just trying you know, to keep up. Let's run fast together. So... Uh, quite a little bit different monologue i would say um and you know we really want to unpack these five concepts that we've laid out and some of our work that we put these together maybe you could help us understand why we put these together and why they're important and then we'll launch into them you know i think probably um the questions that i get asked the most are do you really think this is solvable and mm-hmm. then right on the heels of that is, well, why isn't it fixed yet? You know, those right. two things, they're, they're probably the different, different sides of the same coin. Well, I got that question this week, meeting with some representatives about some of the needs and programs that we have. And that was just that. Why? I mean, really, we need seven million more meals in my district. Why? We've been doing this for so long. Right. And so, and and there's been a lot of research over the years that give us a glimpse into what happens when you don't solve this problem. So just the other day, 
with uh, a group of business people, uh, we were talking about the meal gap in Southeast Michigan. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, the annual meal gap in Southeast Michigan is over 50 million meals. And they were like, well, but, you know, really, Jerry, if they're not getting those meals now, why should we feel like we have to solve this? And I said to them, you know what that tells me is that I haven't done a good enough job of explaining to you what happens when you don't solve this problem. And and so the first reason that you gave for why we haven't uh, solved food security yet was mm-hmm. we have not measured the impact of food security in a disciplined and structured way gets to that point, right? Mm. That I think we do know a lot about the benefits of food security, but we have to do it in a way that lays out for people, if you do this, you get this. If you don't do it, this is what you get. And it's got to be based on data. I mean, all the things that we've been talking about, how to solve the problem. Well, that's called reality therapy in my world. If you continue to do this, what are your options going to be? If you if you change those that premise, what are your options going to be? So I, I, I want to just clarify that, that we've done a show about five reasons we believe that hunger can be solved. But this is really answering the question, why we haven't solved it yet. Right. Exactly right. And the things that we're working on, on that, on that side of the equation, not just on the how to solve it part. And they do go together. So Absolutely. there is some crossover, but I think it's good to look at it both ways. And it might help uh, everybody understand the issues a little better if we look at it from the perspective of, well, why haven't we solved it? So, So again, the first reason being we just haven't demonstrated in a structured way, this is what happens when you don't solve it, right? And so that means we're living with the cost of hunger. We're living with that cost, and we're not realizing that we're living with it. So so I want to point everyone to a resource. It's at hungerreport.org and forward slash cost of hunger, hungerreport.org, cost of hunger, or you can just Google the cost of hunger in the U.S. And you'll get to hunger report the cost of hunger. And conservatively, the estimate of the cost of hunger is $160 billion a year. That's conservative. Now, without getting into their methodology for how they came up with those costs, I want to tell you the things that are happening as a result of not fixing this problem. Mental health problems, suicide, poorer general health, hospitalizations, nutrition and digestion problems, non-communicable diseases, lost productivity, and some other things. Those are the list of things that they had enough data about to say that if you don't fix hunger or food insecurity, this is what you end up paying for instead. Right. So those are pretty significant things. And we know, for example, that with the cost of health care rising, that to have a significant portion of the cost of not fixing this be poor general health, hospitalization, nutrition and digestion problems, and non-communicable diseases, four of the problems hmm. are directly related to those high costs of health care. So fundamentally what we're saying is we are paying a price for not 
solving this, and we have to get better at really understanding this and describing it, communicating right. it, so the people understand. Not fixing it is costing you a significant amount of money. So to put that in perspective, Jerry, they have a stat here on their website that says you said 160 billion dollars a year. Right. Okay. So 160 billion dollars is more than all annual state and federal spending on higher education in the entire nation. Puts it in perspective, I would think. I think that's a great perspective. And and again, you know, part of what we have to decide is what is it we want to pay for, right? right. So, so I know that recently there was a statement that came out, again, this I think was from the USDA, where they wanted to say, we think that SNAP should be a not a way of life but a came out this week that's right but a short-term solution back to its original intent was was the name of the memo exactly right and so while i understand that perspective what i think we need to add to that perspective is well what happens when you don't solve food insecurity for these families because you don't like the idea that it's a way of life. And again, I'm not saying we shouldn't grapple with it, but I'm saying we have to understand the cost of both doing and not doing the program. Well, that's why we're doing this program. Exactly right. So that we can not only have the conversations, but we can change the conversation. And one of the aspects that I want us to talk about on the other side of this break is the emotional toll that families live under, that toxic stress that we haven't measured, that we don't really understand uh, as a cost of not creating food security. He's Jerry Brisson. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. This is Food for Thought. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. It's Food for Thought on WJR with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Jerry, we've, we've done a show on five reasons we believe that hunger is, uh, hunger is solvable. Uh, but we're answering the question today, why it hasn't happened yet. And it's one of the questions we get most often whenever we're out speaking in public about what we believe can happen for the state of Michigan. So, you know, one of the things that that we haven't measured yet um, in regard to the impact of food security is been the emotional toll that it takes on people who are living under the toxic stress and having to make trade-offs every month. Um, I just was in uh, a Twitter conversation um, this morning with a senator from, uh, from Detroit here Senator Adam Hawyer, who tweeted yesterday about families who are, uh, and, and, and talked about his own family that um, has going through a bit of a financial crisis in their time because they were having a baby and were having to make decisions and trade off. And I thought, man, we need to talk. So I engaged him on Twitter. He wrote back to me, and we've got a meeting set up for in a couple of weeks to have this conversation. And just, I just don't know of a study that has ever measured the emotional toll it takes to live like that. Yeah, I'll never forget a testimony I heard from one of my own staff people who was working at the food bank who talked about growing up very, very food insecure. And she said, 
life at home could be like a war zone where every family member was hoarding and hiding and locking food wow. in in trunks and you know it was it was this feeling of if i don't save something for me later then i'm not going to be able to eat so i am going to make sure that i'm you know taking care of myself now again you know you, you it, it, it paints a bleak picture about a caring environment, right? We don't like to think of a home as anything but a caring environment. But when you add the kind of pressure of not just a day of being hungry, mm-hmm. but weeks and weeks and weeks of not knowing if you're going to eat at all, how it changes the way you think about something as precious as home. And, of course, it's hard to measure those things, but being hard doesn't forgive the mistake. Right. It's hard. Let's do it. I mean, that's exactly the point. And we have to do it because if we don't measure the impact of food insecurity, we will never convince everyone that needs to be convinced that it's better to solve it than to leave, just in my five counties, over a 50 million meal gap a year. Yeah. All right. I'm going to push us down the road here a little bit because there's, there's five reasons we're giving why it hasn't been solved yet. And number two is we have relegated much of food security to SNAP and WIC and school nutrition programs that are more concerned with eligibility than with impact. Unpack that a little bit for us. So when the conversations about entitlement programs happen and they get into, should we be paying for this? What often gets talked about is the lifestyle choices of the people who need these services and whether or not they deserve having them, right? Have they done enough for themselves? Have they picked themselves up by their bootstraps? Are they lazy or Which do they have... Which is physically impossible to do, <laughs> oh, just by the way. But, I mean, you know, so that conversation gets going pretty readily. At the same time, um, if if... I think the average person really understood that by providing SNAP and WIC in these school nutrition programs, we are actually making our community a better one to live in. And not just for the people receiving those benefits, but for all of us. And so, again, when our when our legislative efforts get really focused on, well, who should be eligible, rather than what is the real return on investment for the dollar that I'm spending – then it, it, it moves the conversation in a direction that's unwinnable and also not very enlightened. Mm-hmm. So, so now, again, not to say that we, we should not be talking about what does it mean when people are getting entitlements not only for a long time in their life, but for maybe generations. And we know there's such a thing as generational poverty. And we know that the conditions that people are born in are one of the key factors of whether or not they will be financially successful. Right. So, so you know, whether they're receiving entitlements or not is only one small piece of that picture. Well, you know, you asked, you raised the question, should, should we taxpayers be paying for this? So again, you know, it's, it's the difficulty of saying that, that I, I want to hold, the, I don't want this program to cost very much money. 
you know, at this and and hang on to that value. But at the same time, I'm going to put a lot of limitations on how it can be distributed. Okay, so we face that often. So the question has to be, which of those two values do you value most? Well, here's a little perspective from your hunger report, hungerreport.org, when it says, when policymakers cut SNAP benefits to reduce the federal budget deficit, these, quote, savings evaporate the first time a former SNAP recipient with diabetes ends up in the hospital after running out of food needed to manage his or her condition. So where are the savings? And that's precisely the point. We we have to really look at impact, not just on eligibility. We have to certainly consider lifestyle choices and how do we encourage people to make the best choice, the easy choice. I think all of that is important, and the smarter we get at that, the better humans we're going to be in general. Well, but I- in the meantime... Let's spend the money on where it's getting the greatest impact, and food is relatively inexpensive. Right. So when you're looking at solving problems, it's easier to solve them at that level than three or four steps down the path when it gets a lot more expensive. As you mentioned, diabetes just being one of the issues. Just one that example. Gets, yeah, exactly right. So I, I see that as um, as you know another. It, you know, it's on us. It's, that's why one of the reasons we're doing this show and have been doing it for two years is that we want to tell this story. And historically, we, we probably hadn't done as good of a job as we need to do to help our policymakers, help our influencers understand the nature of this problem and the domino effect of the decisions and the policies that are created. Agree 100%. Wow. How do you like that? Wow, shocker. I'm not even going to add another word to that. That was it. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's uh, let's let's push on here to number three in our in our topic, and and why don't you read that one for us? So we've confused the issue by labeling food insecurity as a symptom rather than a sustaining cause of poverty, minimizing the devastating impact of not solving the problem. And I think that. Um, this this is very, very important. We like to put everything in terms of cause and effect, right? This causes that, and therefore, if you fix the cause, then you fix the effect. Mm-hmm. And and people want to put food insecurity I wish as... Was, I wish life was really was that simple. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So people want to say that food insecurity is an effect of poverty, and so you can only fix food insecurity if you fix poverty. And so there's a lot of effort then to say, so let's not put so much effort on the symptom and let's put more effort on the cause. What I would simply say is the people who are needing to, f- to fix poverty in their life by either you know getting more training or, or being more financially independent or otherwise improving their their status in life, right? right. Those mm-hmm. people... Self-sufficiency. That's exactly right. If... They are trying to do that in a food insecure environment. You are creating barriers to their success. And there is no way you are going to fix poverty without fixing hunger and food insecurity. It cannot be done. So I'm going to stop you right there for just a minute. Uh, nice mini rant there. I enjoyed it. And let's pick it up on the other side of this break because it's this point is too important for us to run through it too fast. He's Jerry Brisson. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. You're listening to Food for Thought. We're back in just a moment.
You're listening to Food for Thought with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Brought to you by the Food Bank Council of Michigan. And we're talking about five reasons or concepts, challenges, we think, Jerry, why hunger hasn't been solved yet. And we're talking about our number three, which is we've confused the issue uh, by labeling food insecurity as a symptom rather than as a sustaining cause of poverty. Now, that's a concept that's going to be a little different for people to wrap their heads around because traditionally speaking, in most, if not all, sociological classes that I've ever been a part of, they talk about food insecurity being a symptom of poverty. And what you and I are really saying is that poverty exists. One of the reasons poverty continues to exist is because people are struggling with food insecurity and their minds are held captive by that toxic stress. Well, that's exactly right. And again, when you look at the history of food security, and 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 this this is centuries of history, you can clearly see that that enlightenment happens as the community is better fed. That the ages of enlightenment in history are truly related to the amount of food that was available to people. Mm-hmm. And so now it's not the only thing, right? And I don't want to oversimplify the issue, but I do believe pretty fundamentally based on 30 plus years of experience working with people that if you want people to be more successful, you have to take care of this basic need. Now, you don't have to get too scientific to know this is true. Think about how you behave in your own household. Think about if you're coming home after a long day at work and and you're ready for dinner and somebody wants to ask you a question, are you going to be more or less irritated by that question before or after dinner? (laughs) I mean, the truth is most of us would say, let me have dinner and then I'm going to get to this problem because we know that being nourished and the, the comfort and stress relief that just happens when you have dinner is enough to prepare you to answer a more difficult question. It is not it is not something that is strange to us. We all have this experience from time to time. So when you multiply that effect by, again, weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of not knowing if you're going to have enough to eat every day, it changes the energy you have for fixing other problems. And we do make this statement on this show a lot, but I think it's important to say I do not think it's possible to fix poverty without fixing food insecurity and hunger. I don't think it's possible. I'll go a step further and just really get folks fired up here. I don't think you can solve it until you create food security first. Right. According to Abraham Maslow, and I'm going to stick with him, I think he was a little smarter than any of the rest of us, that he understood as a theory of motivation that air, water, food, the physiological needs in a human's life were the primary motivator and driver until those needs were met. But the other thing I'll do in, with folks who think that we're, you know, kind of uh, heretics here in, in, the, in thinking about this sociological problem differently is I would ask them to think about Albert Einstein, who said, we can't solve the problem with the same thinking that we use to create it. Right. So exactly we've got to right. think different. We've got to think better. We've got to think beyond. And and I, I really think that this whole challenge can be solved if we're if we're willing to put ourselves through that 
rigorous task of thinking differently. Righto. So, all right, well, number four here in our reasons for why we believe hunger hasn't been solved yet. And a lot of folks look at him and they're like, you've been around forever. You've been working on this thing forever. Well, that's not really true. I mean, food banks are only about 40 years old, about one generation. And, and I'd, I'd like for you to remind people, because one of the other questions we get in this is, isn't there enough food? <laughs> yeah, enough food in in the whole system of food, there's certainly enough food. So are people getting enough food is a different question, right? But I do I do think that you're right when you say, um, in some ways, we're still fairly young at looking at this issue of food insecurity in a systematic way. And so food banks are certainly helping and in many cases leading those conversations. But there's other very important conversations going on, for example, about the social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. That's a hugely important conversation that's happening about, uh, you know, well, where are we going to solve food insecurity? Is it going to be in our healthcare system? How much of the problem will be solved there? And that comes up in number five, too. But uh, but I certainly feel like food yeah, banks Yeah, you got to rain them it in, because we're going to... I can't help myself. It'll ruin the clothes. <laughs> so, so um, but... But when we talk about pushing the solution toward charity, one of the things that that means is we're setting up a situation where we say there are needy people and we have to help them. And so charity is about helping people who need help. And it's driven by a very important and appropriate set of motivations that say we need to be kind, we need to be um, generous, right? And other very good qualities that are a critical part of our life. But those ideas don't necessarily result in systematic solutions because mm -hmm. they're not designed to be that, right? They're designed to be something else. And I think that's one of the things we have to be very mindful of. Um, if we spent more time thinking about food insecurity in the same context as sending people to the moon, it would be solved already. Right. But by just putting it in a, well, isn't this just about needy people needing help? By, by just leaving it in that space, it takes away a lot of the strength of resolve that we're going to need to actually be successful. And I think that's the important point to make in this. Well, I like that. I think that that so I'm going to put it in a little bit. You mentioned the um, memo that came out from USDA where they wanted to move uh, back to what they believed to be the original uh, intent of the food stamp or modern day SNAP program, and that was it should be leverages for people um, and not a way of life. Okay, so there's a couple of problems with that that I'm going to highlight here because it fits in with the number four about how we push this on to charity. If you def if you define success by taking people off of the SNAP roles and placing them onto charities roles, they get out of the SNAP line and they get onto our line. That's not success, and that's what this move is going to do. It's going to not shorten our, it'll shorten their lines, but it's going to lengthen ours. And more of the problem is going to get dumped on the charitable sector than what has been covered in by the government's participation in solving this problem for some 
decades now. And I just, I just find that, again, a story that we need to tell and need to come to USDA and Secretary Purdue to say, how do we help you achieve this in a way that does no harm? That's exactly right. There are reforms that could be made to improve the program. We know there right. are. Absolutely. We know there are. And we want to help with that conversation because we think there are opportunities to spend better. But we have to be careful, too, when you look back to the beginning of SNAP in those, you know, 1950s and 60s when that whole conversation was going on, and you say, well, what was the employment environment then? A living wage was less than it is today. There were sure. more people who who all they had to do was get a job, and they could be self-sufficient. And now we know from the self-sufficiency standard that of the 10 most common jobs in Michigan, only one pays a living wage. Now, again, there's a lot of things that have to be done to grapple with that, but to say we need to go back to the original intent of a program that existed in a very different circumstance is misguiding. So I'm, I'm going to say this. I'm, I'm in the right context. I'm for that conversation, but only if you're going to adjust the philosophy of the work supports. You can't drop people off the cliff and expect them to reach self-sufficiency with no leverages to help them. Absolutely. If you take food away, if you take housing away, if you take child credit and, and child support away, you're de-incentivizing work. You're not, you're not inspiring. You can require it all you want, but what we really need to do as leaders is create great choices for our people. Not choices between what's, what's great and what's bad, but what's best and what's good. Then, now we're fulfilling all of our roles. So if you want to have a conversation about work supports and the philosophy of those that people can use for leverage to reach self-sufficiency, I'm all about that conversation. He's Jerry Brisson. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. This is Food for Thought. Thanks for listening. Come back and be with us for our last segment in just a couple of minutes. Welcome back to Food for Thought with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. We are on number five, Jerry, on why we believe hunger hasn't been solved yet. Now, we do believe it can be solved. We've, in a previous show, given five reasons why we think and believe it can be solved. And, of course, people look at us like we got two heads when we talk about that anyway. Right. But there, right. we've got sound logic and principles behind that. But, but we get a question a lot that says, hey, well, why, haven't this, why hasn't it been solved yet? And um, and so we're given our five reasons on this show, and here's number five. Number five is that we haven't considered who benefits when food security is solved. And I'm going to jump to the end of that because there we know that there are there are people who should be investing in food security for their own benefit, not just the benefit of those suffering directly from it. So I want to start with that and then get to who, because when, again, it, it dovetails into the charity conversation when, when you say, well, there are needy people 
And so they're going to be people that need to help them. And you make it about the needy people. Well, it's not just about the needy people. It's about who else benefits when this is solved. And we talk about this a lot on this show, which is why we put it last. Look, healthcare, education, businesses with low-income consumers, businesses with low-income wage earners, each of these should be investing for their own benefit. Whether or not it benefits the people that are needy. And now, we know there's reasons why we're going to benefit people who need help. And so I don't want to take that away. Right. But it's not the only important part of the conversation. And that's what number five is. We need to continue to bring people to the table who benefit themselves when this is solved. Now, you know me well enough, Phil, to know I will give you a reason why everybody benefits. Right, I, I, and you know me well enough to know that I am always going to do that, right? So, yep. and and I get into these conversations, and they're kind of fun, where I ask people, "Give me a group of people that you think shouldn't be fed, <laughs> and I'll tell you why you will benefit by feeding them." Right. And, uh, anyone you want to talk about, I will tell you why. So, so I mean, I, I know that I am extremely biased in this regard, right? But the more we find out, I, I want to give an example of an education thing that we talked a little bit about on the last show, and I want to bring it up one more time. Okay. Snow days. Sure. There's $1.5 million a day just in southeast Michigan set aside to feed kids in school. When there's a snow day, that $1.5 million just goes away. It never comes to our state. And that's food relief that kids would be getting, but now nobody's getting it. And it just kind of disappears into vapor. So how is education benefiting by not spending those dollars on food security relief for the families going to those schools? Right. They're not benefiting. They're getting zero benefit from those budgeted federal dollars. In fact, they're losing the ground with the child, the student, who's struggling with food insecurity at home during those snow days and all the benefit that they've gotten from from getting food at school when school is open. Exactly right. So here's a support that just goes away and it's like, oh well, well not oh well. If you gave that same amount of money to food banks, they could turn that into 4 million meals to help those households be food secure and keep those families stable and those kids thriving. And the the only reason we don't do it is why? Because of question number two. We give more credit to eligibility, only make sure the kids, no parents should get this food, than we do to impact, which is if you, for the same amount of money, you can provide a lot more food, but it's going to go to the household. Well, it's the, it's the same as number two, Jerry, but it's also the same as uh, the policy is working against the value Right. So if you want to say that uh, I, I, want, I want the child to have food, but I'm not going to give any food to the household or therefore to the parents or anybody else, well, that's a very expensive program. Well, you can't come back to us and say, hey, this program costs too much money. Okay, well, then take this policy off that throttles us and watch how much food we can put into the entire community because it's impossible to have a food secure student in a food insecure home. So again, by just focusing on needy people and not focusing on the benefit to education by solving the whole problem, you end up with the wrong 
programs and you end up not really solving either education or food security. And that that exists. That problem and the benefit of or the opportunity to do that is is not available to us or to the Michigan Department of Education because of federal policy. Exactly right. And that's what needs to change. You can't put the expectation for people to be self-sufficient and come off of charity and government roles without giving them the supports to, and the leverage points to be able to do that. So, give, let me give you, you, you get the last word here, and then I'll do a food for thought. <laughs> well, I mean, I think this has been an important conversation, and one that I know we have a lot, and it was good to be able to just list all of these reasons that it hasn't been solved, because we're addressing those in addition to the reasons it can be solved, putting that all together, changing the conversation, and making a difference. And I hope that you listening now really feel that this momentum continues to build, we continue to see success, and we are going to solve this problem. So now it's time for a little food for thought. Have you noticed that nothing worth doing is ever easy? It's like the more meaningful the dream or the vision, the longer and harder it takes. The cure for cancer is taking entirely too long. I appreciate all those who are investing in this work, but geez, I wish we would get there. I don't think anyone thinks like this about hunger or food insecurity, because there is not enough of us who are convinced that hunger can be solved. There's not enough yet. This is why after two years of doing Food for Thought, we are going to, and we are going strong, we are changing the conversation, and we will continue to persevere until the momentum shifts, just like it's going to in the fight against cancer. Thanks for listening, everyone. Be back next week with Jerry and me, and subscribe to our podcast at foodsecuremichigan.org, and look for both of us on social media, especially Twitter. Until next week, remember, it's food first, folks. Food first. Food for Thought has been a presentation of the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food secure state.